in this instance, she came to visit me in jail, and I thought it was quite odd. And I said, Mama, what are you doing here? And she said, um, one, uh, I came to see you because I got some devastating news, bad news. Um, and uh, you've embarrassed me all your life in the church in schools and in the neighborhood and just left the doctor. The doctor said, I'm going to die. That I got a year to live and ask if I will finally change my life before she died. All right, on to this week's episode. It's been a long time coming, but we finally made it happen. In his 22nd season on TV, Judge Mathis is still changing lives. But before he was a judge, he was a young boy from the streets and gang life of Detroit. He made a promise to his mom in her final days on earth that would forever change his life. And we want to give a special shout out to my uncle Gus Blackman, episode number 15, who helped make this one come true. So without further ado, it's Judge Mathis. Judge, appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your busy schedule to join myself and my partner Kyle here on the Underdog Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Brother Blackman and Kyle. We thank you for uh, allowing me to come on. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I think for our listeners, and you know, you are a very well-known public figure um, as one of you know several real-life judges who've moved into tele uh, to to the television studio courtrooms um, as a host of a reality-based um, dispute resolution show. These are real life cases. I know even when I came back from recording, Kyle was like, are the cases real? And I was like, everyone always wonders that. But the cases are 1,000% real. And, um, and so I just kind of wanted to say that as we're going to talk about your journey and how you've gotten to where you are um, uh, today and whatnot. So, um, yeah. Hey, no one can make that stuff up. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, that might be a mic drop right there. Just end our podcast. Show's over. It's, can't make that up. So let's get into it. Um, with this being the underdog, I say it every episode. Um, we want to talk about you know the adverse moments that you face, and I believe there's two moments in your life. And the first one I want to start with was early on. Um, your mom raised you and I believe your, you know, your, your, uh, your three other brothers. Three brothers. Yeah. And mm -hmm. she, she worked, you know, two or three jobs, um, you know, a midnight shift and, as a nurse aide and also a cleaning lady. Um, and you had a rough upbringing. I mean, you were in the gang life and, and different things, but can you take us back to kind of your childhood and um, some of the adversity that you went through and, and how you got involved really in, into the wrong crowd? Sure. You know, um, like many uh, youth, um, unfortunately, I was raised uh, without a father in one of the toughest housing projects in Detroit, a mother raising four boys by herself and um, without a lot of supervision, of course, working nights as a nurse's aide, uh, changing bedpans for the sick and working during the day uh, a few hours. Uh, uh, cleaning homes for the rich. And as a result, me and my brothers uh, had a lot of unsupervised uh, time. And living in a tough housing project uh, where they had dumped so much drugs and guns into our community uh, by the 70s, 
there was a lot of wrong to do and the peer pressure. Uh, but the good news is outside of my mom working, she was an avid Christian and made sure that we all went to church or the deacon picked us up. And those days were Thursday, I'm sorry, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. We were Seventh-day Adventists. Unfortunately, I began to rebel against that in about the fifth grade. Uh, and the church asked my mother not to uh, bring me anymore. <laughs> now, you know, that's bad. Fifth grade to get put out of church. <laughs> so uh, uh, that was uh, the beginning of a downward spiral, quite frankly. And so I was arrested several times as a juvenile, and then later once as an adult, carrying a gun, tried as an adult for carrying a gun at age 17. And so that's where my uh, life began to change while I was there in jail. And a couple of incidents um, touched me and uh, allowed me to uh, change my life. And then I had the 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 background, I would say, of the Christian upbringing to have something to fall back on. And also, my mother sent me to the church school uh, for the first four years, uh, one through four, which gave me a strong educational background. So one of the things I like to tell mothers is that if you invest in your child's education and do your best in teaching them the positive values and spirit principles of spirituality, although they may uh, stray away from it for some time, who knows how long, when they do decide to change their life. There's always some point um, that a kid or a young adult or an adult wants to change their life once they've gotten in trouble. It might only be a day where they say, I want to change my life because I don't want to come back to jail. I want to change my life because I don't want to get shot again. I want to change my life for whatever reason. However, you have to have the skill base to be able to change your life and recover. You know, I always say that privileged kids, they go to counseling. Our kids, poor kids and black kids go to jail. Uh, That's their rehab and that's their counseling. Uh, And I say that because they can, and also they can recover. They, uh, Bill Clinton recovered because he had a quality education. He recovered from the weed smoking that he claimed not to inhale. A lot of the white kids and privileged kids that you see in suburban America, they use just as much drugs, if not more. They go to in and out of rehab and so more. And so what happens there, however, the uh, uh, the the training, the basic education, quality education they received at home, the or at in school, the organized household, two parent household, mid to upper income allowed them to recover. Our children don't have that in the inner city. Seventy percent are raised without a father in the household. Uh, most uh, children now, at least nearly fifty percent are raised in poverty. Uh, And we know that our schools are failing our young people. So most are not able to recover as I did, but thank God for a mother who knew uh, that if she invested in a quality education and in a uh, spiritual uh, uh, life uh, and principles, 
that whatever happened to us, we'd be able to recover. One last point on that. You know, my mother invested more in my church school education than she did in our uh, uh, living quarters, meaning we really didn't have to live in those projects. My mother paid $80 a month for us to live, for me to go. I'm sorry, she paid $120 a month for me to go to the church school, only $80 a month toward our rent, meaning if you put that $200 together in the 70s, we could have lived in a decent neighborhood. But instead, she believed so much in her faith that and invested in it. That allowed me to recover and change my life. So I always want to let parents and others know that that's one of the primary ways out, education and values. And so you have that found, what I found intriguing there is the, is the foundation that she laid for you because it's never too late. So no matter you were derailed, you had a criminal background, you were involved with the the Errol Flynn's, uh, which is a street gang there. Um, I mean, you were living the life, you were a gang member, but because you had that foundation and whether it was one day that you had to say, I want to change or multiple days or a week, because she had laid that foundation for you, you were able to. And I think that leads me into, because um, I want to kind of keep your timeline going, um, when you got arrested for carrying the gun, I believe, and then you basically, when you got locked up, you made a promise to your mother because I think she had found out she had cancer and you made a promise to her that you were going to get your GED. And maybe it was at the time where that foundation kicked in and you said, okay, you know, this is the point where I'm going to change my life. And doesn't mean you had to, but you made that promise to her and, and you made that come true. Yes, I did. And I, and I, interesting, interestingly enough, that's the point in which most uh, men, uh, that's my observation, uh, have decide to change their life when they recognize how much is hurting their mother. Many of us were raised without fathers, so our mother is the most cherished thing in our lives. And most of us do have a conscience, uh, or at least unless you have a mental illness, you have some sort of understanding of life and when you hurt people. And so uh, that's the last person you want to hurt. And it's been my experience that when men are in trouble and causing pain to their mothers, that's when they most want to change their lives. And so was the case with me. Uh, my mom came and visited me. She would never visit. I'd been to Juba now several times on arrest and tip for the most part released. Uh, but uh, she would never come and pick me up from Juba now and have to leave with a friend's mother, uh, whatever the case might be. And in this instance, she came to visit me in jail, and I thought it was quite odd. And I said, Mama, what are you doing here? And she said, um, one, uh, I came to see you because I got some devastating news, bad news, um, and uh, you've embarrassed me all your life in the church and schools and in the neighborhood and just left the doctor. The doctor said I'm going to die, that I got a year to live, and asked if I would finally change my life before she died. And that, if nothing else will change you, is what uh, changed my life and um, within six months, well, and then she pleaded with the judge at my sentencing. I had been held uh, because she would never bail me out 
again, and I've been there for uh, about nine months. I get that thrown off a little, seven, nine, eleven. Um, but I've been there for some time, and when my case came up, uh, she asked the judge to be lenient, told the judge she thought I was a smart kid and that I could do, uh, that I could turn my life around. And the judge gave me time served and gave me a, uh, uh, a second chance, I would do, and because I was facing two to four years. And so uh, I left, and uh, he gave me the condition of getting a GED and uh, maintaining employment. And I think I went a little further than the GED. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's how my life was transformed. Wow. I mean, talk about just impact, just this, this storyline is probably the most impactful we've had in a podcast. So you think about the foundation of your mom investing more than your living quarters, which is a very rare occurrence in this day and age, even let alone back then. And then two coming to you in jail and basically saying, Hey, I'm going to, I had a year to live and, but she never quit on you. Right. Judge. I mean, no, she did not. She never she quit. Did not. She, she, uh, well, I'll take that back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. I just told you she would never come and pick me True. up from Dubinow. She was coaching you. She was coaching. She didn't give up. She was coaching. She buying clothes for me at age 13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She quit on me at 13. <laughs> true, true. I guess. Touche. She, was, Touche. A, she yeah. was a strong coach. Yeah, I'm just kidding around. I'm just yeah. kidding. Her prayers never quit, I promise you. Sure. And so uh, she was a praying mother and uh, took me to another church uh, also, I should say. In the seventh grade, she found another Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> we'll just change churches take that yeah. <laughs> that's great so uh i want to keep like i said let's go into you you definitely came much more than than just uh getting your ged um so let's fast forward to um i believe it was 1988 um and you passed the michigan bar um, or you passed you pass the Michigan bar exam, but yes. Michigan bar authorities were very weary because of your juvenile record. So they did not allow you to practice or I guess to, uh, to sit on the bench or be a judge for the, that first four years. So, a lawyer, a lawyer, a lawyer. Okay. So for another four years now, you're able to be a judge, but now Michigan's not allowing that. So talk about adversity. Not quite. The story was that, in 88, after graduating from law school, took the bar in 89 and passed the bar on my second try. And you have to go before an ethics committee. You have to fill out a routine form for the ethics committee. And that form, uh, one of the things that asked is, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Well, I had had my record expunged by then. So you're able to say no. And when you have your record expunged, and then the next question, which has since been removed based on my appeal to the Supreme Court. But the next question was, um, uh, have you ever had a crime expunged? So it defeats the purpose <laughs> of having an expungement. Right. So upon saying that, I had to go through three appeals committee over the course of three years, and then ultimately to the state Supreme Court to win my right to practice law. 
uh, under the what we determined or what we argued and uh, won the decision that it was unconstitutional to hold uh, an expungement against someone um, when in fact, or a crime against someone which had been expunged. So it was then that I was able to get my license after a three-year wait and a $200,000 uh, debt that I owed on my loan. And so I began practicing uh, for those four years. You have to be a lawyer uh, before practice, before uh, becoming a judge. So it was a little a different, uh, twisted around there. So you had to take... Not, not the easy road, not that's the easy for sure. Route. Yeah, you had to take a different path, you know. And, and... You had to go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's uh, talk about a challenge once again, but you're not, at that point, you're not going to be stopped, right? So after talking to your mom and, and, and going through that experience, and like you said, you just didn't get your GED, you kept piling through. And at that point, I mean, what was that mentality, Judge, that someone can take, you know, I think there's a lot of people struggling on how to get through, especially this with all the stuff with the pandemic, you know, racial injustices, all the different things. How, what is maybe something that you, a knowledge nugget, as I call it, that maybe got you through, you know, cause a lot of people could quit in your journey, right? And this is another moment that you could, you know, say, Hey, I just, the odds are stacked against me. What is maybe, what, what got you through that? Was that just the will from maybe your mom and that foundation of faith and education or what, is there anything else that you could leave with somebody? Yes. And let's start with my mother. You know, as a child, um, as early as I can remember, perhaps four or five, uh, I remember being told I was smart, but that I was bad. Uh, those two <laughs> things I remember hearing most about myself. And I lived up to it. I was, even though I was a troubled kid, all the way from kindergarten, I was put out of first grade, had to go to a different school um, as of the first grade. And uh, uh, I was always called smart, but bad. When I was in school, because I was often suspended and, uh, and paddled, as you are in the elementary school back then, uh, I still liked school. I loved school, and the reason being, because I wanted to show off what I had been told. I had been told I was smart. And so I wanted to show everybody I was smarter than them. So I looked forward to going to class. And every time they asked a question, I would be the first one to throw up my hand and try and show how smart I was. But by the same token, I lived up to the other part of that. And that was I had to show everybody that I was a bad kid. <laughs> so it started there. I think you hit on something there. And so that built confidence. Sure. So the two traits I would say I uh, advise, aside from the training that I referred to earlier, is uh, confidence and fearlessness. And uh, the confidence came from my mother and, and the success that uh, uh, I attempted based on what my mother told me or the success I achieved in being smart like my mother told me I was, uh, never really had under B average. Uh, went in school and then the fearlessness came from uh, growing up tough um, I wasn't scared of anything um, particularly once I got out of the street and I tell brothers that all the time when I speak I say you're on the corner 
acting super macho, talking about how you this and you're that and you're the man, but you're scared of participating in uh, mainstream society. You're scared of white people. And you won't, you won't fight. They close the door on you one day and it's over with. You're back to the street. And so I challenge their manhood because that's what we learn in the streets, this twisted sense of super macho manhood because we didn't have a father to treat us, most of us, to train us in real manhood. And so it's that same fearlessness I had when I got into mainstream society. I thought I was just as smart, if not smarter than everybody, in college, law school, and everywhere else in my career. And I wasn't scared. Sure. And I was willing to fight, whatever it took. Okay, you know what I'm giving my license? I'm not going to just stop. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go to every appeal. Okay, I've exhausted the appeal committees, three different committees. Okay, fine. I'm going to take it to the Supreme Court. How about that? And then we won. And then I uh, practiced for only three years. And because I was a little um, dismayed about uh, how I was treated, by other lawyers. The ethics committee is made up of other lawyers. And so I was angry. Uh, each committee had about 10 lawyers on it. So really a total of 30 lawyers told me that I wasn't fit to be a lawyer because of my youth background. And by that time, I, had, I was working for the mayor of the city of Detroit at that time. I had worked for Jesse Jackson, ran campaigns, worked for city council, and they wanted to hold my youth background uh, against me. So I was angry about that. And I said, okay, I'm going to practice law for a few years, find out and practice juvenile defense law so that I can help uh, uh, get other juveniles off or get them sentences similar to mine so that they can have a second chance and then I'm going to run against the same one and become the boss of the same 30 lawyers that voted against me becoming a lawyer and sure enough within the first six months of the year of my judgeship I had three of those lawyers come before me and each time it felt so good to say to the litigant um sir or ma'am, I want to know if you'd like for me to recuse myself from this case. I've had experience with this lawyer. And then I would ask the same lawyer. I would ask the lawyer, sir, I don't know if you recall, but you turned me down at the committee because you didn't think I was that, 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 that. Do you want me to recuse myself? They would be humiliated. Once I tell the courtroom <laughs> what they did to me, and here I'm sitting up as their boss, and I gave them a chance to tuck their tail and run away. And most didn't. They stood there, they sat there and took it. And of course, I wasn't biased against them, but I had to let it be known that they held me, they held me down and now I'm their boss. Love it. That, Love it. See, now, right now makes me want to, I'm so excited to talk about this next part. Uh, of your journey because listening to you talk about confidence and fearlessness and having to go in front of those, you know, having those other lawyers come to you who you ultimately became their boss, um, as we've seen on television and, the, you know, how you've had to address people and, and you know, 
um, you, you're just notorious for keeping it quote unquote real with people. And, and I know we'll get to that, but I want to talk about that confidence and that fearlessness because the next portion of this is how you and my uncle Gus here, who's in the bottom of the screen for those who are watching, um, executive producer of your show, but let's go back to the nineties because your show is now in your 22nd season. So let's go back to the nineties of how you two met. He's given me some nuggets on that story, but I think it's such a tremendous story on how you bet on yourself when he presented the opportunity to you. So can you take us to back when you guys met? I think you were in L.A. with Jesse Jackson um, and Uncle Gus gave you a call because there was an I there. He had he had an idea. And can you kind of pick the story up from there? Well, well, he heard of me because of the work I had done in the community and the media coverage of my work. When I ran for judge after those three years, the media came behind me and dug up my record and tried to use it against me. So it became a big uh, media follow campaign, former street youth running for judge 15 years out of jail. And so when I won, it became national news for a couple of days and uh, producers and agents began calling about a movie. Uh, but, you know, you know Hollywood. They have me come <laughs> out there. You, I've never heard a yes that didn't work. Every, yeah, every time I went out there for these producers, they called me. It was a yes that went nowhere other than when Gus Blackman said yes. Uh, but the way I met Gus, uh, I was uh, Motown had started a television division uh, under the new presidency of Andre Harrell, who had replaced Motown. And I'm sorry, who had replaced Barry Gordon. Uh, I think it was his first presidency. And he created the television division based on the success the Motown experienced with Lonesome Dove and uh, Jack the Jacksons miniseries and the Temptations miniseries. So Alonzo Brown, I met him and he just coincidentally happened to be head of television for Motown, vice president of television. He asked, what are you doing out here? I said, well, I'm being called out here every six months for the last two years. People keep wanting, saying they want to do a movie or whatever and nothing happens, but that's what I'm here. So I tell him my story, and he says, wow, that sounds like a miniseries or a movie. He says, I'm president of Motown Television. Would you be interested in a movie or a miniseries? I said, sure, fine. I'm, you know, like everybody else, I'm blowing it off. Uh, here's my information. Um, next thing I know, uh, get a call. Uh, he says, I got this guy, Gus Blackman, who is a high-ranking executive, one of the highest-ranking black executives, uh, in years at Warner Brothers. And I told him about you, and he told me to bring you in. Uh, he might be able to uh, work something for you. And sure enough, uh, came and met with Gus. He then came um, to Detroit. Uh, I believe he came with the others to get some footage, to see me on the bench doing my thing, and then took me to the... Uh, Warner Brothers executives and sold it the same day. And so uh, that's how it all happened. And 
were there not a Warner, were there not a Gus Blackman who worked for Warner Brothers so many years and had given his sweat and tears to a company which even now employs less than 10% African American and back then I'm sure it was less than three uh, were it not for him standing up to deal with what he had to deal with in a racist society that is underrepresented in entertainment particularly uh, I wouldn't be here. He is the man that left the factory of Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> one of the most economically depressed cities in America, like other uh, uh, smokestack cities, steel industry, auto industry, left their homeless, drove to Warner Brothers. I tell his story more than I tell my own. Worked in the mail room, then within not too long thereafter, he was a vice president, and his colleague was the president of television. So that's such a heartwarming story for me to tell about him more so than myself whenever I talk about getting on TV. Sorry to take so much time with that answer, but it's important for me to share that journey because it lets us know how important it is to have executives that look like us in the uh, entertainment industry, helping to make decisions or bringing us to the decision makers uh, whom you have a relationship with. Now, there's a part of that story that Uncle Gus had mentioned to me that I think is critical for people to hear. So you guys go to this meeting, and he said that if anybody gets up and walks out, <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> sign. <laughs> and during the meeting, someone got up and walked out, but he came back with the president. But I also want you to touch on the part of if this show doesn't. So you you just did all of this work, all of this school to become a judge. You've got all this notoriety. You've put all this work in. If this show fails, you can't go back to the bench and become a judge, correct? That's correct. So you, I will have lost that six-figure salary. And that two hundred dollar, that two hundred thousand dollar debt and loan would still be there. <laughs> but no, I, the, the story is much more interesting than that. So, Gus says, "Now look, when we get in here with these executives, you you got to do your thing. You got to keep their attention. If they look away, ah, it's over. You got to keep them from looking away." He just said, look away. He didn't say, get up. He said, look away. He <laughs> said, if they look away, you're throwing it. I said, okay. So I'm like, I got to go and do my thing. I'm doing my thing. And suddenly one of them gets stuck. I go, oh, it's over. <laughs> he comes back in with another guy. I don't know this guy's president. I have no clue who this guy is. I'm like, man, maybe this is security. And he's saying, hurry up so I can throw you out. I don't know who this guy is. But he says, the guy that came in, he says, would you start over? I'm like, start over? I mean, just gave my best performance. <laughs> but I go back into my thing. And on the way out, I have no idea who that was still. We're at that on the way out. We're passing through. Like everybody in Hollywood has told me, on the way out the door, he shakes my hand. You know, Gus and them have walked ahead. He shakes my hand and says, we got a deal. So I get to the elevator. I'm not impressed at all. I've heard that a thousand times. 
I get to the elevator. I said, who was that little guy that came in at the end with the glasses on? Hey, yeah, I said, he did the usual thing, song and dance out here. On the way out, he shakes my hand and tells me we have a deal. Their eyes, but all of them, what? He told you that? I said, yeah, who was he? That's the president. <laughs> <laughs> so 15 minutes later, Gus is calling me and saying, who's your lawyer? They got an offer for it. Before I can get out of the building. So yeah. that's how it all happened. And the risk, once again, that came from that fearlessness, that confidence and that fearlessness. I felt, yeah, you know, they told me. I'll give Gus or whomever it was credit. Might have been the lawyer who said, you have an 80% chance of failing. Television, daytime television, there's only a 20% success rate that you'll come back the next year. Well, because only Judy was on at that time, so there was no uh, big demand for judge shows and no time slots. Uh, everything was talk shows back then. And so even with that, I said, well, I'll just take that 20% chance. Um, I believe I can do it, and I ain't scared. Um, so that's how it happened, and I took that chance, and it worked out. Yeah, no risk, no reward, right? You confidence, right. fearlessness, and you keep parlaying that. Good partner in crime with Uncle Gus Blackman there. And uh, yeah, what a duo. Who right? keeps me straight, by the way? Who keeps me on target? <laughs> uh, he keeps us straight on, and on target. So we're, we're in the same boat, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> getting a call from him is worse than getting a call from the president of, of uh, Warner Brothers. <laughs> because he's a, he's a friend. I got to be frank with him. I can't lie to him. And we're very uh, uh, we're very honest with each other. <laughs> so wow. I'll say I'll, I'll say Gus, now you know, okay, you know I'm a nut. And so that was one of those incidents. He said, okay, Judge, yeah, you are nut. He said, but just uh, try and uh, do your best because this is daytime television. <laughs> so all the lewd and lascivious comments, that's just keep them back. <laughs> don't call people crackheads every day maybe just once a week I said okay <laughs> okay Gus I'll do my best but then I remind you I said crazy is what has kept us on the air Gus <laughs> that is true years. <laughs> 22 years on the air sustaining excellence right. to say the sustaining least excellence. congratulations on that and how do you sustain let's just let's just sit on that for a second sustaining excellence in a new industry right you're saying 20 percent chance after year one you're going to be able to you know the the average show fails 80 percent of the time how have you outside of continued confidence and fearlessness and you know having an edge as you just mentioned what else is sustaining in a new career per se even though it's a similar how how, how have you guys you and gus and your whole team sustained that excellence Yes, well, I think it's uh, me being myself and having a uh, uh, good executive, a good executive producer. The other executive producer, um, Alonzo Brown, keeps me laughing. He's a fun <laughs> guy. So when I'm angry, uh, I call him for some good laughs. <laughs> when I want some good counsel and direction, I call Gus. So they play their role. But with regard to uh, my role, um, you know, I'm always myself. As you just said, I keep it real. And that has 
always worked for me since the time I uh, left college. You know, uh, while in law school at night, I ran campaigns and worked in politics, and I was very successful because I was able to organize grassroots communities to vote for the various candidates I, rec I represented because I was being myself, an old project kid who knew what Detroiters who knew how to where to touch their heart and who had a plain spoken, uh, direct uh, communication. Um, that's how Detroiters communicate. And so I just brought that to television, just being myself. And one of the things my diverse background provided, however, was a good range. Uh, whether it was a, whether it's a, and still is the case, whether it's a college graduate who wants to come on and debate the law in the king's language with me, I didn't handle that. Or if it's because I'm that. Or if it's a street youth that comes on and doesn't think I know how to speak his language. I can. I've been that. Or if it's a family man who comes on. I'm that. If it's a single mother who comes on. I've had that. So I'm able to relate to every single litigant's life that comes before me. And I think that's the real success of the show. Awesome. Awesome, man. That's, that's awesome. You want to get into uh, rapid fire? Yeah. yeah let's do it. So we put you on the hot seat here at the end, Judge. Uh, I don't think they're too hot, but we have a few questions for you uh, that we want to uh, that we like to ask. Gus, Gus, take your mic off. This is the time to interfere. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got. Let's keep Go it hot. Ahead. Let's keep it hot. <laughs> um, all, all right, so. You um, you went to Eastern Michigan. You also went to the University of Detroit, if I'm correct. And then yes. you have, um, I believe, your sons or uh, went to, I believe one of your sons or maybe your sons went to Michigan. And then you had another son, I believe, or son, that went to Michigan State. Daughter went to Michigan daughter, State. Daughter went to Michigan uh -huh. State. Okay. So my question is, what Michigan team do you root for? Michigan State, by far. Okay. Um, with basketball. <laughs> Football is Michigan. Oh. So I'm able to, yeah, I'm able to give a little of the both. My daughter works for uh, Tom Izzo in his office as a student assistant, and he's a friend of the family. And so uh, he became one right after she began working there after her freshman year. So it would be Michigan State basketball and U of M football. I'm a I'm a U of M fan from Dayton, Ohio. So I, I go blue. I'm there with you on that. That's right. right we, we've had a lot of Buckeye. I'm a Buckeye. So if you guys want to be winners, Judge, yeah. Judge Calvin, you know, I think you're the first Michigan fan we've had. And we had Urban Meyer on. We had Ohio State's wrestling. We've had a lot of Ohio State. We had Austin on. Hatch on. We had Austin. We had. Yeah, I'm sorry. State. We didn't have Austin on. We had Austin Hatch yeah. on. Come on, former, man, come former on. basketball no, player. No comments about the fans or Urban Meyer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it moving. <laughs> that is true. We'll, we'll keep it moving. Um, you want me to keep going? Yeah, keep going. So you have an Emmy. You got an Image Award. Um, and those come from gut-wrenching cases. And I'll ask about a specific case in here in a second. But um, what is one of your most memorable cases? Uh, and I know there's thousands upon thousands. But what's one that comes to mind when someone asks you that question? 
Yeah, I, I'm asked that uh, quite frequently, and I have the same answer for the last, I think, 10, perhaps 12 years. The young man came before me, street gang member, former street gang member in Los Angeles. He moved. His, both parents died of HIV AIDS, and he moved to his parents because they were heroin addicts. He moved with his aunt and uncle in San Francisco who had middle-class lifestyle, and he began to go to community college, turned his life around. So he was suing his uncle because his uncle threw his clothes out of the house because he came in at 12 midnight. He was age 21. And uh, when I was like, hey, you see how far he came, sir? Uh, this was his uh, uh, his uncle by marriage. It was actually his, the young man's aunt and the young man's aunt's husband and threw his things out. And I said, this is your nephew. Ah, he ain't nothing to me. What? Yeah. So I gave him a good tongue lash in that uncle and told him, here's a kid that escaped the street gangs of L.A. Come to you. He hasn't had any positive role models in his life. And you throw his things out because at age 21, he comes in at midnight. I said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And then we helped the young man throughout his, uh, we helped him, uh, uh, both encouraging him and helped with some of his tuition at the community college. He came back three years later with his associate's degree, and he was the youth minister at his church. Not only was he no longer gangbanging, he was a youth minister. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. What a great story. Absolutely. Success story, to say the least. I got, I got one, Lightning. I don't even know how, if there is a rivalry, um, Judge Judy versus you. Is there what, what is there a rivalry there? Is it? Uh, are you kidding me? She's, are you kidding me? She's the best that I ever did it. What are you talking about? Okay. All right. Hey, I'll just. There's no question about it. Okay. I was just trying to. It's like I'll a. So <laughs> she's MJ, you're Kobe? There's no question. Ah, you own the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm a, all right. All there right. we go. Now, I, I had to ask. I know. I know. I, 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 you know, something we don't get to ask. He, wanted, he, he likes to mix it up. He's yeah. fearless. He's yeah. confident. So I figured I'd throw it out there. Now, now, Uncle Gus told me to ask about this one. Can you tell us about the former boxer when Leon Spinks came on your show and when you suggested he do with his money when he won? Won the case. <laughs> God bless his soul. I love Leon. Uh, and even in his passing, I have great admiration for him. He's the modern day Rocky. I'm doing all this prelude because, <laughs> because I made mean, that may not have been right. <laughs> but when he won his case, I say, now go get you some teeth. <laughs> <laughs> go get you your know, teeth fixed. Years without two front teeth. So I told him to go and take this money. Go get you some teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, great, great. And me and his brother became fast friends, and uh, we would laugh about it uh, yeah. whenever we saw others. Me and his brother would laugh about it. Yeah, he was a great boxer in his day. So yeah, as you said, mm -hmm. God rest his soul for sure. Um, you asked the, the final question. Absolutely. Do. Okay, absolutely. let it rip. Last one. All right, so this last question, before you answer, you have to help us with the answer. So I'm going to go ahead and ask, 
Who is one person that we should have as a guest on the Underdog Podcast? Oh, no. I mean, that's got the time to step in. Maybe I'll I'll go with Jesse Jackson. Um, And that being the case, he was uh, raised uh, by a single mother, and his father lived next door and was married to another family. And he couldn't see that family. He had to look through the fence to see his father and his uh, step-sibling or his siblings. And that's a tremendous success story. He went on to get a scholarship to go to college and play football and trained under Dr. King and faced all the adversities that the civil rights leaders and activists of of the past and then went on to carve away for us to have the first black president of the United States uh, by making a, uh, making white America acclimating to the 1988 campaign where he won 11 million votes, uh, opening the way for Barack Obama. Obama. So I would suggest you have him on, and he is still out there against me and many others uh, my and many others' advice, uh, struggling and fighting even with uh, um, the disease that he suffers from, Parkinson. In fact, he was marching with the Black Lives Matter activists and protesters this summer against the advice of his doctor. And so he's one that clearly is a success story and a fearless fighter. Awesome, awesome. We'll uh, we'll see if we can't make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. We'll Appreciate out. that. Yeah, you know, thank that's, you. That's yeah. a that's a fearless and confident. Yeah, we 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 would. That's I didn't even think we could get you on the show, <laughs> let alone. Any, I mean, that's anything's possible. Yeah, anything is possible. Anything's possible. Next thing you I know, we'll have Oprah. Yeah, that would be able to help with that. That would be awesome. That would definitely be awesome, Judge. Appreciate that. Um, yeah. Well, no, that brings us, I think, to the end. Um, I, you know, I know you're doing a lot. I know we didn't touch on it, but I definitely think we probably should real quick. Um, you know, just a lot of the things that you're doing in the community. Um, I know you have the Mathis Center in Detroit where you've given out, um, you know, turkeys for Thanksgiving and different things um, and whatnot. You want to talk a little bit about the Mathis Center, maybe a, any other little things that you're doing? Or not yeah, one of, one, one, of the, one, one of my primary uh, objectives have been since being uh, – uh, since being blessed with the platform of television has been to try and uh, do the same for, for others that was done for me. And that is transform the lives of black men whom have gone down the wrong path. And to that extent, we've had an ex offender program that has done well at the Mathis community center. And also we've done television specials that uh, many have said has helped change their lives. And so those are some of the other things that many people don't know uh, that is my passion. Awesome. Awesome. Giving back, uh, using your platform um, and, and impacting, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives as, you, as you've done over the years. So, um, you know, we definitely appreciate that. And I know we want to say thank you very much for, for taking time. I came Did to I help change your life. I said you had been to jail. Did I turn your life around? <laughs> hey! <laughs> Thank you again. Yeah. I needed you about uh, eighteen years ago when I got put in the drunk tank, and I needed you to to, to get me on the straight and narrow. Which, thank goodness, I have good parents. 
to uh, to help uh, direct me in a better better fashion there. So. I outran the cops in college. So, uh, easy. Well, yeah, no, honestly, thank you for changing lives. Thanks for giving back. Thanks for sharing your story on our platform, which will impact lives as well. And uh, keep doing great things. And we're, we can't wait to continue to watch you guys keep rolling, keep going. So we love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I usually ask where people can follow you, but I think we know that you know we can we can definitely catch you catch you on television. Um, and then, or Judge Mathis Instagram. Judge Mathis Instagram, perfect, perfect. So uh, we'll put that when we release this. We'll obviously let you guys know when we do release this, and, and we'll put it out there for for people to to follow and and definitely continue to keep a track of the impact that you're having on everyone. So. As Kyle just said, thank you very much, Judge. Uncle Gus, thank you very much for helping make this happen, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. All right, we'll Thanks talk to you. both of you. Brother Kyle, thank you as well. Love you, buddy. Yep. Love you, man. Thank Have you. Have a good one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Uncle Gus.